Hello, and welcome back to Oral Valley Catholic. This is Father John Arnold. We're in the 23rd Sunday of Ordinary Time, and the chapter we're in in this Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, and here's how it starts out. Great crowds were traveling with Jesus, and he turned and addressed them. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Who does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. And so if you think of these things, it's why does he tell us we have to hate our parents and our family? Why does he say we have to be willing to be executed? This is not any basic teacher, right? If you want to learn math with me, you better learn how to hate your family. If you want to learn um, English literature with me, you got to be prepared for the electric chair. What is he talking about? So let's now turn to the Gospel of Luke. So why does Jesus tell us if we want to come to him, we have to hate our father and our mother? In one sense, it's uh, hyperbole. He's overstating it. But the background of it is Exodus chapter 20, and it's when Moses comes down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments. And here's what Exodus 20 says, starting in verse 1. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You'll not have other gods beside me. Shall not make for yourselves an idol or a likeness of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters beneath the earth. Shall not bow down before them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, inflicting punishment for their ancestors, wickedness on the children of those who hate me, down to the third and fourth generation, but showing love down to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not invoke the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave unpunished anyone who invokes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you may labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, either you, your son, or your daughter, your male or your female slave, your work animal, or the residential alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But on the seventh day he rested. That's why the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Then honor your father and your mother that you may have a long life in the land the Lord your God is giving you. And the Ten Commandments go on from there. But think about it. Um, he, God commands that you love your parents. That's the fourth commandment. Um, but he takes it, Jesus, and says, if you don't hate them, you cannot be my follower. What he's claiming for himself is those first three commandments um, about the Sabbath day and the Lord your God and the Lord's name. He's claiming what only God can claim. And then uh, further into the gospel, he says, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Which of you wishing to construct a tower does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if there is enough for its completion? Otherwise, after laying the foundation and finding himself unable to finish the work, the onlooker should laugh at him and say, 
This one began to build, but did not have the resources to finish. What king marching into battle would not first sit down and decide whether with 10,000 troops he can successfully oppose another king advancing upon him with 20,000 troops? But if not, while he's still far away, he'll send a delegation to ask for peace terms. And in the same way, anyone who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciples. No idols. This is against idol worship. But there is one aspect of this reading, um, which is about the divinity of Jesus, loving God above all things, that God is the ordering principle of all the rest of our loves. Think about how Jesus says this. And this is what St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas pick up on. If anyone comes to me without hating his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, if even his own life, you cannot be my disciple. And so the idea of love of yourself, love of your parents, love of your spouse, love of your kids, love of the larger community is about a well-ordered love that's rooted first in the love of God. Thomas Aquinas and Augustine talked about it in two different but complementary ways. When St. Augustine talked about of the right order of love. He talked about it in terms of virtue, that to love God above all things was an act of justice towards God. And then you owe justice to everybody else. And how is it that you acted with justice? Well, you made prudent decisions. You understood what your duties were, the object of your duty, whether it's God, your parents, your spouse, your kids, your neighbor, the poor, but that in with good prudent judgments, you knew how you could love them in relationship to each other. That's why, for instance, uh, the ideal of romantic love, where you love somebody, uh, a potential fiance, perhaps a boyfriend or a girlfriend, and you elevate them emotionally above God and your parents, what you're looking at is a disordered love. That's basically the story of Romeo and Juliet and the story of almost every romantic comedy and drama made in America in the last century. But the idea of justice requires prudent decision-making, and then moderation, according to St. Augustine, who is really getting this from the Greeks, and directing it first towards God and then towards neighbor. But moderation is basically about self-control. You can't be just, you can't make good decisions, unless you can control your passions, your attachments, uh, and your appetites. So a passion might be your emotions of anger or lust. Your attachments would be things that um, uh, you, uh, you were completely giving yourself to. It could be a car, it could be drugs, alcohol, it could be a career. And then appetites are all natural things. Um, you know, you need to be able to avoid overeating, overdrinking, over any uh, natural appetite. And then you wrap all this up in the right order of love, according to St. Augustine, because you uh, have the virtue of fortitude. Uh, and fortitude is patient endurance. And so you just get up every day, your boots hit the ground, and you keep doing it. And so... Joys come to your life, wonderful. Don't um, overestimate the value of them. 
but don't underestimate either. That would be uh, good prudence and moderation. Uh, sorrows come into your life. Well, life is full of sorrows. They don't end life. You need to put them in the right perspective in your life. And courage is always required if you're going to have a well-balanced life, which is a just life. So for St. Augustine, especially in the city of God, that would uh, kind of explain how he'd look at a well-ordered love where God is the ultimate object of our sense of justice, but in justice we owe love to our neighbors also. And so we were prudent and moderate and uh, courageous in how it is that we exercise the virtue of justice, which is giving another what their due is. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas uh, what is it, 700 years or so after um, St. Augustine, he would look at the right ordering of love in a different way. He would say that you learn to love God above all things, then you must learn to love yourself because it's if you don't love yourself, it's hard to love other people. And for instance, if you're always putting yourself down, if you're always complaining about how your body looks, or you're always uh, beating on yourself for cho choices you make, it's much more likely you're going to beat on your parents, your spouse, your kids, your friends uh, for the very same things. A psychologist would say that you're projecting, Thomas Aquinas would say, is that your love is disordered, starting with yourself. You need to learn to love yourself as just a flawed human being uh, redeemed by the love of God. And so it's that love of God uh, which puts the love that you have for yourself and everybody else in, um, in right relationship. In the Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas goes in a lot more detail about it than I'm going to go into about it. And a lot of it is, uh, I think, some of it is uh, 13th century ideas, 12th and 13th century ideas. But the basic premise is entirely solid. Um, that uh, love of self is not pampering yourself, it's not being narcissistic. It's learning how to embrace yourself with your talents and your failures. What we would say is the virtue of humility. Uh, and humility is what I talked about last week, but it's having both feet on the ground. You don't expect too much of yourself, you don't expect too little of yourself. You see yourself for who you are, and then you can learn to love others. So with the idea of either of these ways of looking at ordering love, with God as the ultimate goal of love, the ultimate source of love, it's how it is that you now afresh see others. And that's the second reading for the 23rd Sunday. It's from St. Paul's letter to Philemon, which is 335 words long, perhaps the shortest uh, writing in the New Testament. But it is a remarkable writing, and I'd like to take the time to talk about that now. St. Paul's letter to Philemon is about an escaped slave named Onesimus. About half or more of the population of the Roman Empire were slaves. And there were three ways that you could become a slave, at least three ways. One, you could be captured in war and sold by the victorious Roman general into slavery. Two, you could be born into slavery. Your parents were slaves. And three, is that you could be sold into debt uh, 
It's sold into slavery uh, because you had debts you couldn't pay back. Or you might sell yourself into slavery in order to raise the money um, to pay back your debts. Hard to say what kind of slave Onesimus was because some slaves have condemned to like the uh, granite or salt mines. It was like a death sentence. That's how they punished um, the bishops in the middle of the third century. They sent them to the salt mine to be killed. I think Bishop Sylvester died that way. Um, but uh, just as likely you could be in the household and you could be a bookkeeper, an accountant, or a cook, and you may have been treated pretty well. Although sexual abuse of slaves, though it was kind of frowned upon, was not a crime. Slaves were basically the property, the chattel of their masters. Um, and so here's what St. Paul says in his letter to Philemon. I, Paul, an old man, so this is at the end of his career, perhaps when he is imprisoned at Caesarea Maritima before he's shipped off to Rome to be uh, executed. And now also a prisoner for Christ Jesus, urge you on behalf of my child Onesimus, whose father I have become in my imprisonment, I'm sending him, that is, my own heart, back to you. I should have liked to retain him for myself so that he might serve me on your behalf in my imprisonment for the gospel. But I did not want to do anything without your consent so that the good you might not, so that the good you do might not be forced but voluntary. Perhaps this is why he was away from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a brother, beloved especially to me, but even more so to you, as a man and in the Lord. So if you regard me as a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Well, that's a pretty remarkable uh, thing. You know, the early church, Jesus didn't call for the end of slavery. That became a, a really important part of a, American Christianity, uh, the abolitionist movement. But manumission of slaves by, by uh, Christians um, was, was encouraged. You know, Onesimus is mentioned as a bishop in uh, other early church writings. And in Colossians chapter 4, verses 8 to 9, um, it says, Tychicus, my beloved brother, trustworthy minister and fellow slave in the Lord, will tell you all the news of me. I'm sending him to you for this very purpose so that you may know about us and that he, that he may encourage your hearts together with Onesimus, a trustworthy and beloved brother who is one of you. They'll also tell you about everything here. So uh, the letter to Philemon and Colossians are probably some of the last letters that St. Paul ever wrote. And they're the two letters that mention Onesimus in the New Testament. Um, one uh, asking... Uh, Philemon, who's Onesimus, Onesimus's owner, to grant him his freedom. The second from Colossians, making it look as if Onesimus did in fact get his freedom. You know, when we were talking about the right order of love, what has to happen between a human being's ears when you start going against the flow of your culture and you recognize that slavery is just wrong? And then you are so convinced that you would give up your own property. It's interesting that this second reading from Paul's letter to Philemon is paired 
with Luke in the first reading, which is all very much about love of God. But you know this this um, and this right order of love. But it's interesting to watch how this plays out in um, in uh, the the Ro- Latin uh, Latin and Roman world. Um, Plutarch and who wrote the Moralia and Apuleius who wrote the Metamorphosis and I think the Golden Ass both talked about slavery in ways that uh, I had mentioned earlier. Uh, Plutarch says that some of the more trustworthy slaves actually managed farmers or they were masters of ships or they were business agents or they were like the butler running a household. And even some were money lenders working for their masters. So they're kind of white-collar jobs. But Apuleius in his Metamorphoses um, describes a, the whole surface of a slave's skin was painted with livid welts. Their striped backs were merely shaded, not covered, by the tattered patchwork they wore. Some had thrown on a tiny cloth that just covered their loins, but all were clad in such a way that you could discern them clearly through their rags. Their foreheads were branded, their heads half-shaved, and their feet chained. We don't really know what kind of slave Philemon was. Was he like a white-collar slave um, that did some kind of business, uh, ran some kind of business for his master, or was he a slave that had been whipped and beaten by Philemon? Philemon's a Christian, and Paul's talking to him the way that he is. Probably maybe the former um, uh, you can't really know. You know, it's interesting. The If you ever heard, you know, there's like four different kinds of Jews in the first century. There's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, there's the Zealots, who are the, ref, uh, the, the, uh, the rebellious ones, the warriors. Then there are the Essenes. They always say the Essenes are responsible for the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, they're down around the Dead Sea. But uh, Josephus, who wrote about the uh, Essene, said they did not bring wives to them. It was like a monastic life um, where they just lived celibate lives. And they didn't own slaves. In fact, uh, what Josephus said was unique about them is that they performed uh, menial tasks for each other. Um, They were, of course, destroyed by the Romans, Vespasian and Titus, when they invaded the Holy Land in the 60s and... um, uh, probably at the end of that war when uh, uh, when the Essenes were destroyed and the Romans conquered the Dead Sea area. And you probably remember the, the great last battle called Masada, which is uh, still very much a, a live thing today. Well, um, the Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls are associated with, is very close to Masada. I've actually been fortunate to be to both places. But you know uh, the 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 need for slaves or the the Pope's concern about slaves, the Church's concern about slaves, didn't end in the first century. Pope Saint Gregory the Great um, wrote that uh, Christians should manumit their uh, slaves. Here's what he wrote: Since our Redeemer, the Creator of every creature, in His loving kindness, vouchsafed to human assume human flesh for this purpose that by the grace of his divinity he might break the bonds of the slavery in which we were formerly held and restore us to freedom. It's salutary deed to restore by the benefaction of manumission to the state of liberty in which they were born, men 
whom nature originally begot free, for whom the law of nations subjected to the state of slavery. So he wasn't calling for an end of the um, status of slaves, but he was calling on Christians to manumit slaves, let them go free. Pope Eugene IV in the 15th century condemned slavery in the Canary Islands, but apparently nobody believed him. You know, before the Civil War, the Pope wrote letters uh, to the United States, Catholic bishops, um, uh, asking them to be read, condemning slavery as immoral. But it was not read in the South because the bishops there feared what would happen if they would read it. So, you know, when people ask about Christianity, uh, I always like uh, G.K. Chesterton's line, um, Christianity hasn't failed, it's not really been tried. Uh, and it's because it really is such a high-minded understanding of fraternity between men and women, uh, ordered according to the love of God. So, you know, when we think about our struggles in the United States, uh, gender issues, abortion, uh, so many things, it seems, you know, this is not a new struggle for the church, trying to make live options our moral insights. But for 21 centuries, the church has been a witness. And so let's talk about maybe how we should think about these issues in the right order of love, especially when we're coming up with hard things like slavery, which is now still practiced in the world. Um, and sometimes it's just wage slavery. Uh, but fundamentally, how much big a difference it is, is it from what the Romans were doing? Um, but as we think about all of these things, let's think about how it is that we should order love and make our decisions. So let's turn uh, now and talk about the great virtue of prudence and well-ordered love. You know, the first reading from uh, the Book of Wisdom says, Who can know God's counsel or who can conceive what the Lord intends? For the deliberations of mortals are timid and unsure are our plans. And that's really the problem, it seems to me, of Christian life, is we know what the church teaches, we understand the gospel, we believe we understand what our Lord requires of us. But you know, um, from the beginning, um, have been a reluctance to rock the boat. So how is it that you can order your life living in a sinful world uh, where there's so much pushback and many people, especially in our country, that simply don't buy into the whole idea of a well-ordered love, like Thomas Aquinas would, would express it, or a life of virtue as St. Augustine would express it. How is it that we exercise our responsibilities uh, towards our all of our neighbors um, to kind of uh, witness to this necessity of and this beauty of a chaste, well-ordered love. And so the virtue that we want to, uh, to uh, build is called prudence, right judgment. So prudence is understanding what's required of you, understanding the object of what you want to accomplish, but also taking into account the, all the circumstances, pro and con, um, difficult and helpful uh, to try and do what you think the Lord uh, sh should tell you to do. 
You know, last week I talked to you about the book Humility Rules by Augustine Weta, and I'd like to turn to that again for some of his meditations on humility and the virtue of prudence. So here's what he writes. The monk should fulfill the daily commands of God by works. He should love chastity as he should hate no one. So the tools of good works, the first times that I read um, from Benedict on chastity, and that's last line, the monk should fulfill the daily commands of God by works. He should love chastity and he should hate no one. That is from St. Benedict's rule for uh, Benedictine monks. And so what Father Weta says is that the first time he read Benedict's advice on chastity, it struck me as extremely odd. Perhaps this is because I associate the term chastity with all the things I shouldn't do. And from what I can tell, that's how most people think of it. When I teach moral theology, my students inevitably ask, he teaches high school, when I'm on a date, how far can I go before it's a sin? I've been asked that question. But a question like this demonstrates a certain lack of prudence. After all, you would never ask a teacher, what's the least amount of work I can do to pass the class? And you certainly wouldn't ask your coach, what's the slowest I could run to win this race? So if your goal is to get to heaven, then asking what the least I can do probably indicates that you have the wrong attitude. Nice insight. A better way to put it might be, what's the best way to be chased on a date? Or better still, how can a young man keep his way pure? Now just take that insight about all the challenges you feel in your Catholic life. Here's what uh, Father Wettis says uh, about his kids and uh, students and telling him about chastity. He says, if you can't brag about it to your mom, don't do it. Isn't that a nice rule <laughs> for prudent judgment? Behave in a way that make your mom proud. And so he gives an exercise for how to develop prudence and thought. Think of a rule you don't like. Reword it in a more positive way. Or he talks about prudence and word. And what he says is, it's how we think about things, especially the world that we live in. Whereas Americans, we feel very comfortable in denigrating authority and tearing it down. We wonder why uh, there's this creeping chaos um, because mostly our leadership is pretty good, but it's not perfect and it's not me. But prudence in word is to what we say is we should respect rightful authority, whether it's the president, the Congress, or cops, pastors, uh, government officials, um, ushers in church, I would uh, say, is, wow, we're going to take a short road to complete chaos if we don't recognize that we need authority to have a well-ordered society. And it is prudent uh, to pay attention to that authority and support it. So he says, here's a good exercise. Um, someone tells you something you already know. Say thank you to him. Uh, you know, the idea of uh, getting upset because someone tells us something we, uh, we know. There's that little thing of pride there. But to say that someone's taking the time and told you the truth, although you already knew it. Um, nice, nice to say thank you. Or about how prudence in, indeed, prudence in what you do. So here's Father Wedet writing. Ultimately, everything we have is on loan to us from God. Before long, we'll all be dead and someone else will be in charge of it. And this holds true on a global scale as well because the earth is the Lord's, Psalm 24.1. So regardless of how you feel about climate change or species extinction 
or resource depletion, the material world should be treated with enormous care because it doesn't belong to us. We have no more right to burn a hole in the ozone layer than to burn a hole in the living room carpet. It's a matter of respect, not for nature itself, but for God's nature, our, the architect of the world and our Lord. And so he was telling a story, which I thought was funny, that he had um, put an iron down on the rug for some reason and burned a hole in the rug. And his mom got very upset with him as a teenager. And she says to him, just please tell me, so I don't get my expectations up, how much of my house are you going to destroy before you finally leave and get your own place? Uh, he still remembers the story. Uh, so it should say something if we all remember some embarrassment maybe from our youth where we weren't quite responsible. So here's what Father Wettis says about developing prudence indeed. Uh, clean up someone else's mess. He says bonus points if it's on the floor. So thank someone for telling you what you already know. Uh, clean up somebody else's mess. Um, and the, think of the rules that you don't like and restate them in a more positive way. Control how you make judgments in your mind, with your voice, and what you do uh, to bring respect to the world. Because it's God's world. And it's rightly ordered when you love God above all things. You hate God more than you hate the iron on the floor. I mean, you love God more than you love the freedom you have to destroy things. Learn to orient your whole life towards God in prudence. So this has been another episode of Oral Valley Catholic. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you, live, if you survive to the end of the podcast, I hope you'll give me a like on whatever your podcasted um, provider is. God bless you, and we'll see you next week. Mm-hmm.